Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Well, yes, ladies and gentlemen, really coming from inside the radio, the computer, the cell phone, the watch. Are you listening to me on your watch? Hello? Is this thing on? Won't you wind me, please? But uh, wherever you're hearing it, that is to say this. Now news of superbugs. Superbugs. Well, we learned something this week about uh, so-called superbugs. When scientists first made contact with an isolated village of Yanomami hunter-gatherers in the remote mountains of the Amazon jungle of Venezuela, found Venezuela way in 2009, they marveled at the chance to study the health of people who had never been exposed to Western medicine or diets. Much to their surprise, these folks' gut bacteria have already evolved a diverse array of antibiotic-resistant genes, according to a new study published in Science Magazine. Even though these mountain people had never ingested antibiotics or animals raised with drugs, or people raised with drugs for that matter, the finds suggest that microbes have long evolved the capability to fight toxins, including antibiotics, and that preventing drug resistance may be harder than scientists thought. The human gut, as you know, you got one, harbors trillions of bacteria. You got that in you? Please. Collectively known as the microbiome. Several recent studies have found that people in industrialized nations host far fewer types of microbes than hunter-gatherers in Africa, Peru, and Papua New Guinea, for example. And I'm proud of it. I got fewer microbes than your dad. This is intriguing as the absence of diverse bacteria has been linked to obesity, diabetes, and many autoimmune disorders such as allergies, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, and colitis. So microbiologists from NYU learned that Army personnel aboard a helicopter had spotted Yano Mami living in an uncharted village in Venezuela. They immediately requested permission to study these uncontacted people before they were exposed to Western medicines and diets and would therefore lose their microbial diversity. The research suggests the Yanomami gut bacteria have evolved an armory of methods to fight a wide range of toxins that threaten them, just as our ancestors and other primates have done to fight dangerous microbes. They may, these bacteria in these folks, may already have encountered toxins that occur naturally in their environment that are similar in molecular structure to modern antibiotics. Tom? Molecular structure? Mm Mm-hmm but have yet to be discovered by scientists. Or gut bacteria in humans have evolved a generalized mechanism for detecting certain features shared by all antibiotics and so can mount a defense against new threats. This discovery is troubling because it suggests that antibiotic resistance is ancient, diverse, and astonishingly widespread in nature, including within our own bodies, says an anthropologist involved, not involved in the study. Such findings and their implications explain why antibiotic resistance was so quick to develop after the introduction of therapeutic antibiotics and why today we should be very concerned about the proper use and management of antibiotics in clinical and anti and, and agricultural contexts. I think it's too late for that, but it's not too late for hello, welcome to the show.
a blue seagull on a marble stair trying to find ocean looking everywhere hard times in the city and a hard time by the sea From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. David Simon, the co-creator, I guess it's fair to say, of Treme and The Wire, wrote a uh, fairly long piece this week, drawing upon his experience as a reporter and then a fictionalizer of life in Baltimore for The Wire. And it was uh, through him, I think, most of us first learned of the practice of the rough ride in which Baltimore police would um, give chosen arrestees a trip downtown in a in a van where they might not be belted might be restrained but not for their protection and uh, just to teach them a lesson Dave, uh, David Simon's larger point is that there was kind of a code 
It was uh, perhaps not the fairest code in the world, but it was a code. People in the streets knew what could get them arrested and what wouldn't. And the advent of two things, the war on drugs and the tough-on-crime wave of the late 1980s and 1990s, wiped out that code, told police that whatever they did to clear the streets, for whatever reason, with probable cause or not, if it uh, resulted in anything that looked like lower crime rates, that was okay. And here we are. And now, it's time for me to read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. First of all, from governmentexec.com, newly revealed memo revives flap over zero dark 30 disclosures. I will read that for you. The four-year-old dispute over whether top Pentagon officials disclosed classified information to the makers of the Bin Laden raid movie Zero Dark Thirty took on a new wrinkle last month. The nonprofit Project on Government Oversight in the middle of April unveiled a document suggesting greater White House involvement in influencing the filmmakers than previously known. Analyst Adam Zagorin argues that the new information supports the notion that the former CIA director, Leon Panetta, and uh, a defense undersecretary released unauthorized details of the Navy SEAL raid in Pakistan, and that then acting Defense Inspector General Lynn Hallbrooks allegedly doctored a report to bury that information. Hallbrooks left the watchdog staff in late April, reportedly to take a private sector job with a defense related law firm. How does that happen? Wow. The dispute over the two versions of the IG report on comparison with the media, I'm sorry, on cooperation with the media and makers of Zero Dark Thirty, a never-circulated draft that addresses the Panetta disclosures or a subsequent version that omitted it, caused turmoil within the IG staff. That was due both to suspicion that high-level people with White House contacts were being protected, as well as technical dissents from IG investigators, sources told government executive. But the Pogo revelation is extraordinary because it involves a for-official-use-only document, said a former defense official familiar with the issue. It's one thing to dance around whether to release a report to the public. It's another to dance around whether to release a report should, which should have gone to all Defense Department leadership and the Congress. The documents show the White House may have given the filmmakers more precise information on how the Al-Qaeda mastermind's secret location was discovered official of the Project and Government Oversight labels as disturbing the lengths to which the Defense Department's then-acting Inspector General Halbrooks went to suppress details of the collaboration between Hollywood and the CIA. But wait, there's more from National Mortgage News. Servicers in the Department of Justice's crosshairs following J.P. Morgan's robo-signing settlement. Mortgage, yes, I'm reading it for you. Mortgage servicers were supposed to have stopped robo-signing foreclosure documents when state and federal authorities cracked down on the practice some years ago, but it seems some have not learned that lesson. 
While only J.P. Morgan Chase has been cited for recent robo-signing infractions, Clifford White III, the head of a justice program that oversees consumer bankruptcy, says he's seeing evidence of other servicers not following proper protocols when it comes to dealing with homeowners who have filed for bankruptcy. That could include not just robo-signing documents, but also failing to inform homeowners of mortgage payment increases or charging excessive loan default fees. They wouldn't do that, would they? Such abuses violated 2012 settlement between law enforcement officials and the nation's largest mortgage servicers. White is putting other servicers on notice. They, too, will be punished if they flout the rules. Compared to where we were a few years ago, the banks are doing a better job, he says. But, he adds, it's disappointing that after all the years, the problems are not completely rectified. Last month, J.P. Morgan Chase agreed to a $50 million settlement with the U.S. trustee program for robo-signing notices of payment changes in 2013 to borrowers in bankruptcy. Almost all of the restitution will be in refunds and credits to borrowers. For its part, J.P. Morgan Chase has maintained it's not guilty of robo-signing documents because its own employees reviewed the accuracy of borrower information. Nonetheless, a third-party vendor actually electronically signed and filed the payment statements with the bankruptcy court. And that, according to the Justice Department, is a violation of the rules. I think, says White, if one robotically affixes signatures of people who may not have even reviewed the document, it's fair to say that's robo-signing, unquote. In a recent interview with American Banker, yes, mortgage servicing news reads American Banker, the trades read the trades. White spoke about the details of the recent J.P. Morgan Chase settlement. What exactly did J.P. Morgan do wrong, says White? Chase's documents were signed by current employees who had nothing to do with reviewing the accuracy of the documents and by those who had left the bank and by employees of third-party vendors working on unrelated matters. In addition to robo-signing, we found Chase had filed untimely or inaccurate payment change notices and escrow statements, says White. To a bank, he adds, misapplying a few hundred dollars in payments may not seem consequential, but to a financially strapped parent, it may make a whole lot of difference. Those of us in government and in the financial world should never forget that. It appears, White says, there remains a problem with regard to taking the regular servicing platforms and applying them to default services in bankruptcy, which does have different rules. They just couldn't follow the different rules. Robo-signing lives. And now, one more. One more from the trades that I'll read for you. Because that's how I am. From Current, the trade publication of public broadcasting, public radio podcasters, Woo Madison Avenue. What? Is this a reason to, to, to give? I get... I'm going to read it for you. That's what I'm going to do. Big stars of public radio's podcasting world took the stage of a cabaret nightclub in New York City Wednesday to do what they're best at, telling stories. But this time the topic was the power of their evolving medium to connect with listeners and the audience was advertisers. It was the first podcasting upfront show put on by NPR, WNYC, and WBEZ Hundreds of ad agency representatives and podcasting fans mixed with hosts and producers in the crowd around a small dark stage at Le Poisson Rouge, the Redfish, 
for a program called Hearing is Believing. It was clear the hosts brought their experiences pitching for money during pledge drives or Kickstarter campaigns to their moments in the advertising spotlight. The success of Serial is because we're really good at what we do, says Julie Snyder, senior producer of This American Life and co-creator of Serial. We've been putting out This American Life for 20 years. It's consistently one of the most popular programs on public radio. We know our fecal matter was the meaning of the word she used. The crowd included... um, well, the, the uh, folks who showed up included a producer of Radiolab and Glenn Washington of Snap Judgment. They hosted the presentation portion of the event, which also featured live music. Ira Glass and Guy Raz of NPR also took the stage to make pitches. The podcasting up front had a decidedly different vibe from the flashing event. Flashy events mounted to sell network TV ads. According to the chief marketing officer at New York's WNYC, this feels like public radio up close and intimate, more of a community, he said. Time will tell if this translates into more underwriting, he said. This is our first step out. They stayed true to their ethos, said the vice president of business development at Roku. This upfront is partly a celebration of podcasting, said National Public Media's Brian Moffat. It's not your traditional upfront. We're not going to go out there and reveal grand plans. We're trying to tell the story... There's that word again of podcasting and kind of show the power of the medium. Podcasting's big moment, as it was referred to ad nauseum throughout the occasion, hasn't resolved its challenges. For a long time, podcasting has been one of those things people kept expecting to get big, and it never got big, said Ira Glass. It was like world music or something. Unquote. Serial's popula- uh, popularity put podcasting on a new trajectory. Technology changes such as Apple making its podcasting app native to iPhone 6 operating system also helped, as Glass pointed out. And now Public Radio's big producers had attracted a room full of advertisers looking to get in on the game. Public radio podcasts are especially valuable for advertisers because their emphasis on telling good stories really connects with listeners, said one ad buyer. We're not looking to buy ads on every podcast. We're interested in good stories, he said. It's a very intimate medium that the audience generally trusts. That trust is transferred to the advertiser, he added. Honestly, people feel so intensely about the shows they download, Ira Glass added, and that affects their relationship with the advertisers. And the first way that has that, that has an impact is that people notice the advertiser and people remember the advertisers. I talk to people in advertising, says Ira Glass. That's the rarest thing to happen now with the glut of advertisers out there trying to get people's attention. People notice the ads in their podcasts, unquote. A survey by Edison Research on the preferences and behaviors of public radio podcast listeners supported Glass's points. The stations that hosted the upfront commissioned the research. The exciting news was we could do a nationally representative survey because the size of the audience was significant enough 
says the head of uh, strategy and marketing at Edison Research. Among the findings presented to ad buyers, large majorities of the public radio podcast audience listens to most or all of an episode and say they appreciate companies that support public radio podcasts. The new medium must overcome shortcomings if it's to take off with advertisers. Foremost among these is audience metrics. Still, they keep coming back, the advertisers, said the underwriting VP at WNYC, because it works, unquote. Yeah, still called public radio. Why do you ask? Oh, you're probably asking because I read the trades for you. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, what the frack? What's going on in the world, of the fabulous world of fracking? Hydraulic fracking, fracturing for uh, oil and gas for your driving pleasure. For the first time, the U.S. Geological Survey has unveiled a map of earthquakes thought to be triggered by human activity in the eastern and central United States. The L.A. Times reports this. Imagine the L.A. Times. Oklahoma is by far the worst hit state recently, according to the USGS study. The state, that state, Oklahoma. Hey, Oklahoma, you can't hear me. Uh, had more earthquakes magnitude 3 or higher last year than California, part of a huge increase recorded in recent years. Seismic activity in Texas near Dallas-Fort Worth has also increased substantially recently. Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, and Ohio have all experienced more frequent quakes in the last year. All of the areas highlighted on the map are located near deep fluid injection wells or other industrial activities capable of inducing earthquakes, said the study. The chief of the uh, Geologic Survey's Seismic Hazard Project said the pattern of increased quakes is troubling, unquote. These earthquakes are occurring at a higher rate than ever before and pose a much greater risk and threat to people living nearby, he said. Yeah, but it's a gas boom. If it's a gas boom, something's got to go boom. What the frack? News of the godly? Sure, got that for you. The former leader of the Roman Catholic Church in England and Wales says he feels sorrow and shame. Oh, why? Uh, for allowing a known pedophile to continue working as a priest, that's all. Cardinal Cormac McCarthy, uh, sorry, Cormac Murphy O'Connor. England and Wales. Sounds Irish, doesn't it? Cormac Murphy O'Connor. England and Wales admitted his decision to appoint Michael Hill as an airport chaplain instead of reporting him to the police, left Hill free to abuse again. Only in airports. In an extract from his memoirs published in The Tablet, that's a religious publication, I guess, or a medical one, the Cardinal admits that he failed at the time to recognize the lasting pain and damage sexual abuse inflicts on victims. I guess he thought it was fun. He uses the book to apologize to victims of sexual abuse by Catholic priests in Britain and around the world. Hill was jailed twice for a catalog of sex attacks on children, including altar boys. The Cardinal, who's a friend of Pope Francis, was serving as Bishop of Arundel and Brighton in the early 1980s when allegations of sexual abuse came to light. He removed Hill from his position as a priest and sent him off for therapy, but he recounted how about two years later, Hill came to him crying with apparent remorse and begging, quote, on his knees, 
unquote, to be allowed back into the ministry. Well, you got to get on your knees to breach the... After reviewing psychiatric reports, he decided to appoint Hill to the vacant post as chairman, uh, chaplain at Gatwick Airport, believing he would have little prolonged conf- ta- contact with children there. Of quote, of course I was very wrong, and he went on to abuse another child, the cardinal wrote. Instead of giving him another post, he continued, I should have reported him to the police. I will always look back on my decision with sorrow and shame, unquote. Courts in Britain later heard how Hill sexually assaulted a teenager with learning difficulties who'd gone to the airport chapel after he missed a flight. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. A sorrowful and copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
From the home of the homeless, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Once I had a secret that lived within the heart of me. All too soon, my secret became impatient to be free. And my secret's no secret. Well, we had to turn to a publication called DailyPakistan.com to find out exactly how many people, aside from the two that President Obama apologized for killing last week, how many civilians have been killed by American drone strikes. Turns out it's over a thousand. U.S. policy clearly states attacks by unmanned serial, aerial vehicles are only carried out when there is near certainty that non-combatants will not be killed or injured. Near certainty is nowhere near certainty. Figures tallied by groups such as the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and Open Society Foundation show U.S. has launched more than 500 drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia since 2002. These covert operations directed by the CIA and military have resulted in the deaths of as many as 5,160 people, including 1,124 civilians, according to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. No, the United States government didn't share that with us, because it's secret. More news of the secrets? Yes, right here, right now. You know what Stingray is? Stingray is a technology that enables someone, perhaps a criminal, perhaps a law enforcement agency, to spoof your cell phone into thinking it's contacting a cell phone tower. It isn't. It's contacting a criminal or a law enforcement agency. Now we learn that, according to Ars Technica, a um, tech-oriented website, that the FBI is actively attempting to stop the public from knowing about stingrays. It's also forced local law enforcement agencies to stay quiet even in court and during public hearings. An FBI agreement published for the first time in unredacted form last month clearly demonstrates the full extent of the agency's attempt to quash public disclosure of information about stingrays. The uh, most notable example of this is language showing the FBI would rather have a criminal case be dropped to protect secrecy surrounding the stingray. Well, you know, criminals. They're a dime a dozen. Well, little, little is known about how exactly stingrays are used by law enforcement agencies nationwide, although new documents have recently been released showing how they've been purchased and used in some limited instances. Cops have lied to courts about their use. Not only can stingrays be used to determine location by spoofing a cell tower, they can also be used to intercept calls and text messages. You know, like the NSA would do. Typically, police deploy them without first obtaining a search warrant. A warrant. You know, like the NSA would do. The new document released by the New York Civil Liberties Union in response to a, a court victory 
includes this paragraph, quote, in order to ensure that such wireless collection equipment and technology continues to be available for use by the law enforcement community, the equipment, technology, and any information related to its functions, operation, and use shall be protected from potential compromise by precluding disclosure of this information to the public in any manner, including but not limited to press releases, court documents during judicial hearings, or during other public forums or proceedings. The uh, staff attorney for the New York Civil Liberties Union told Ars Technica she's never seen an agreement like this before. Very broad in scope. The FBI letter also explicitly confirms a practice that some local prosecutors have engaged in previously to drop criminal charges rather than disclose exactly how a stingray is being used. Last year, prosecutors in Baltimore did just that during a robbery trial because they care so much about crime in Baltimore. Don't you know? At least that's what we've learned this week. And finally, about news of secrecy. According to the New York Times, the American Psychological Association secretly collaborated with the administration of President George W. Bush to bolster the legal and ethical justification for the harsh treatment, some would call it torture, of prisoners in the post-9-11 war on terror. This according to a new report by a group of dissident health professionals and human rights activists. It's the first to examine the association's role, the psychological association's role, in the interrogation program. It contends using newly disclosed emails that the group's actions to keep psychologists involved in the interrogation program coincided closely with efforts by senior Bush administration officials to salvage the program after the public disclosure in 2004 of the whole Abu Ghraib stuff. The APA secretly coordinated with officials from the CIA, White House, and the Department of Defense to create an American Psychological Association ethics policy on national security interrogations, which comported with then-classified legal guidance authorizing the CIA torture program. That's what the authors of the report conclude. The involvement of health professionals in the Bush-era interrogation program was significant because it enabled the Justice Department to argue, in secret opinions, that the program was legal and didn't constitute torture, since the interrogations were being monitored by health professionals to make sure they were safe. And to emphasize their argument, the association grew too close to the interrogation program. The critics' new report cites a 2003 email from a senior psychologist at the CIA to a senior official at the Psychological Association. You know, senior psychologist to senior psychologist communication. In the email, the CIA psychologist appears to be confiding in the association official about the work of the two private contractors, Mitchell and Jessen, who developed and helped run the enhanced interrogation program at the CIA's secret prisons. In the email, written years before the involvement of those contractors was made public, the CIA psychologist explains to the association official that the contractors are, quote, doing special things to special people in special places, unquote. Sounds like nice corp but nicer. The Bush administration relied more heavily on psychologists than psychiatrists or other health professionals to monitor the interrogations, at least in part because the Psychological Association was supportive of the involvement of psychologists in interrogations, according to a Pentagon Pentagon official in 2006. The American Psychiatric Association, said the Pentagon official, on the other hand, I think had a great deal of debate about that, and there were some who were less comfortable with it. And maybe still are. Today, because there's nothing bigger than your Dr. Bill. Stand by, Dr. Bill. I hate to see people suffer. 
except on my show. Have a great show, Dr. Bell. You're going to get the help you need, and we're going to film it. Five, four, three, two, one. Dr. Bill! Dr. Bill! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You know, when our government needed the help of the helping professions, one group stood tall, the psychologists. Now, I, I still like to think of myself as part of that profession as long as I don't have to get my license restored. And today we're going to hear from someone who decided not to help. He calls himself a psychiatrist, and we'll find out just what that means. Here's a man who we're calling Dr. Fritz. Come on out. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Bell. How are you? Well, Dr. Fritz, I think what my audience is more interested in is, how are you? Well, specifically, uh, how, do you feel good about not helping our government interrogate some very dangerous people? Well, unlike some folks who call themselves doctors, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> but I'm actually part of the medical profession, and we take an oath, Dr. Bell, an oath to do no harm. Now, now, now Dr. Uh, Fritz, I think everybody watching this program knows some medical doctor who's done some harm to somebody. Well, uh, and I'm just wondering yeah. whether it ever occurred to you uh -huh. that maybe the person in Washington on the other end of that phone line mm -hmm. knew a little bit more about the precarious state of our nation than maybe you did. Well, many things have occurred to me, Dr. Bell. Mm -hmm. For example, I have thought long and hard about my own tendencies towards obsessive-compulsive behaviors mm. and towards a very mild form of narcissistic personality disorder. And, and they still let you practice? <laughs> because, well, you know, the, the nature of my practice is mm. that we undergo analysis ourselves so that we can better understand our patients. So the answer, of course, is yes. That's one of the reasons why my association couldn't participate in the so-called enhanced uh, whatever they were, yeah. because we wouldn't have had sufficient opportunity to encounter the detainees in a sufficiently private setting to gain any understanding. Oh, let's just of, cut to the chase here, Dr. Fritz. Well, you wanted to put trained terrorists on the couch and talk to them about their dreams until the cows came home in suicide vests. Isn't that, am I right? Well, <laughs> I, I'm sensing a certain hostility in you, Dr. Bell. I do... Do you want to talk about that? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm not all that happy about my new syndication deal, and a certain assistant on my staff doesn't seem to be able to understand the meaning of room temperature as it applies to sparkling water. But And, and how do you feel about that assistant? Do you feel as though she or he is ignoring your instructions out of some sort of uh, suppressed hostility towards you? Hey, tell you the truth, I think about two-thirds of the people on my staff would rather be working for Dr. Ooze at this point. Uh, well. <laughs> but you're not going to get me distracted off the subject of your refusal to deal with the consequences of your own behavior. Would you like to lie down? No, sir, the format calls for me to sit. Uh, but w w would you like to look at that camera mm -hmm. and talk to some of the relatives of people who might have died because of your selfishness? Well. Yeah. Think about it. Uh, do you often experience fantasies of death and retribution? Did you 
have them as a young boy, perhaps? You know, Doctor, I mm. think that what I did as a young boy, frankly, is between me and my mattress. <laughs> you know? Uh, would you have participated as a psychologist in these interrogations, Dr. Bill? You know something? Yeah. If I weren't so darn busy taping customized station promos every afternoon and actually had the time to get my license restored, you bet your sweet attitude I would. <laughs> Thank you. All right, but... Thank you. But... But is it possible, Dr. Mm. Bill, that mm. you have a fantasy-based identification with the victims of these interrogations? <laughs> have you ever had such fantasies? No, but what I do have is another guest. She's no fantasy. She's a practicing psychologist, and she's your ex-wife. Please welcome Dr. Emma. Come on out here. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Emma, mm. was this man this way when you two were married? Oh, yes. Every time I'd get involved in some kind of professional work outside the narrow confines of a practice in an office suite, mm -hmm. he'd deride me as a dilettante. Oh, wait, 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 wait a second. He'd ride you? I deride her. Mm. I derogate her. These arts are meant to be practiced in therapeutic settings, <laughs> not as part of some kind of freak show. Oh, so so now, Dr. Emma, he's calling you and me freaks? Welcome to my marriage, Dr. Bill. <laughs> she spent a year doing research oh. on what was the most pleasing kind of voice to read public radio funding credits. Mm. That, no, there you go. Again, oh. not most pleasing, most trustworthy. I, well, I was... Dr. Emma, Dr. Fritz, do you mm. think this is the kind of problem that could be solved by a day at a Dr. Bill boot camp? Not really. Well, for once we agree. All right, then. I do hate to see people suffer, but if anybody deserves it, Dr. Fritz, it's you. Uh, once again, I'm sensing some hostility. Yeah, folks, uh, today you've seen what happens when I go on the Fritz. Tomorrow, Mother is afraid her football-playing son isn't violent enough, so she bought him a rifle. Until then, don't get better without me. The Dr. Bill Show is a Dr. Bill production. And now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Warm. The award-winning News of the Warm, won't you? And I think you will. I just speak for me. But if you're like me, or if you just like me, you'll listen to the warm. Rising temperatures across the planet have set more new records. The U.S. government announced middle of April that the globe experienced its hottest month of March since record-keeping began way back in 1880. The period of January to March was also the warmest on record, said the monthly report by NOAA. The latest data, which takes into account global averages across land and sea surfaces, follows announcements from the same U.S. government scientists that 2014 was the hottest year in modern history. One of six species faces extinction as a result of climate change. Urgent action must be taken to save large numbers of animals from being wiped out, an analysis this week said, according to Agence France Presse. The study published in the U.S. journal Science reported by a French news agency, isn't this a nutty globalized world, found that a global temperature rise of 4 degrees Celsius could spell disaster, spelled D-I, 
well, you know, for a huge number of species around the world. We urgently need to adopt strategies that limit further climate change if we are to avoid an acceleration of global extinction, said the study's author, who's an ecology and evolutionary biology researcher at the University of Connecticut. Yes, they have a university. The analysis evaluated so far uh, 131 previous studies about the impact of climate change on flora and fauna around the world. It concludes that with each rising degree in global temperatures, more species are at risk. Two-degree increase could threaten 5.2% of species. A three-degree boost would put 8.5% of all species at risk. And a 4.3-degree Celsius rise would threaten one in six species. Different regions of the world, of course, had very varied extinction threats. South America is the most vulnerable region. 23% of the species may face extinction. Ocean and Earth science researchers from the University of Southampton were part of an international team of scientists to reveal how the interplay between ocean currents and marine microbiology served to regularly to regulate, sorry, potentially damaging emissions of the potent greenhouse gas methane created beneath the Arctic. The uh, co-authors of the study, Water Columns Methanography, Methanotropy, oh please, (laughs) Methanotropy, controlled by a rapid oceanographic switch, was published in Nature Geoscience. The study reveals that fast ocean currents promote methane escape into the atmosphere because they inhibit the growth of marine bacteria which consume large amounts of the gas. Large amounts of methane are stored in the seafloor as gas hydrate, a solid ice-like substance, mm, might be refreshing in the summertime, that consists of frozen methane and water. When the hydrates dissolve, methane finds its way through the sediments and can be released into the water where it ascends to the sea surface. Marine bacteria can consume some of the methane. That's been known for a while. But the research done in this study shows that ocean currents have a major control over how much escapes further to the atmosphere. During the past decade, Antarctica's massive ice sheet lost twice the amount of ice in its western portion compared with what it accumulated in the east, according to Princeton researchers, who came to one overall conclusion. The southern continent's ice cap is melting ever faster. So better get down there soon if uh, if you want to see some penguins. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide To beautify our countryside We all News of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. A 16-year, sorry, 10-year-old lawsuit over whether the Army Corps of Engineers took a portion of the value of land in St. Bernard Parish, neighboring county to New Orleans, and the lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans through the flooding caused by the building of the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. That case has been decided by a federal judge. She ruled the Army Corps of Engineers' construction and absent maintenance of the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, the Mr. Go, created a ticking time bomb that magnified the effects of storm surge flooding in St. Bernard Parish in the Lower Nine. That resulted in a temporary taking of the value of residential, business, and public property. 
That's according to U.S. Court of Federal Claims Judge Susan Braden. That temporary taking included flooding during um, August 2005 and intermittent flooding during Hurricanes Rita in October of that year and Hurricanes Gustav and Ike in 2008. Now, you may recall a previous lawsuit claiming the Corps was responsible for damage in those areas because of the Mr. Go was uh, ultimately rejected by an appeals court after a federal judge had written a blistering 150-page-plus-page opinion denouncing the Corps' negligence. He called it criminal negligence. The appeals court said, no, the Corps has immunity because deciding whether to build the thing and whether to maintain it were discretionary, and there's a discretionary immunity clause. This is a different case. This case says it's a violation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment for the federal government to take property without due process, and that the Corps, by absenting maintenance and uh, building what probably they shouldn't have have in the first place, that resulted in the taking of the flooded property. It's unclear how much the St. Bernard Parish, nine individuals and eight businesses listed as initial plaintiffs in the suit might receive or how many properties would eventually be covered. Braden, the judge, based in Washington, D.C., urged the Corps and the Department of Justice to engage in settlement talks over the amount of money to be granted. The Army Corps' construction, expansion, operation, and failure to maintain the Mr. Go Channel caused subsequent storm surge that was exacerbated by the funnel effect during Hurricane Katrina and subsequent hurricanes and storms, causing flooding on plaintiffs' properties that affected a temporary taking under the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution, said the judge. A spokesman for the Justice Department said, we're reviewing the ruling. The Corps of Engineers said, let's try to get out of this one. And now the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. The boss of London's transportation network has apologized for a strongly worded attack against Britain's commuter trains, in which he labeled one network, well, poopy duty, and like the Wild West. Sir Peter Hendy, the Commissioner of Transport for London, said that passengers hate the suburban rail service and liken staff members to members of a secret police who get on and find everyone they can. He's now apologized to the chief executive of one of the companies that runs the railroad. He said his comments about those trains were unjustified and excessive, and I apologize. The interview was several weeks ago during the worst of the issues at London Bridge Station, but that's not an excuse. Passion is no excuse for insult. Sorry. Deadline Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh radio DJ, has been suspended after making comments on social media about Freddie Gray. Whammo! 100 suspended DJ Mike Jax yesterday, probably not his real name, after he posted a photo of Gray on his Instagram account with a comment, he was pretty busy before he was unjustly killed at the hands of Baltimore PD. The Whammo general manager says we're dedicated to presenting journalistic integrity as well as being sensitive to our listeners. Whammo 100 does not share the views. Jax has apologized for his post, saying it was not his intention to justify Gray's death, but to highlight that his arrest record does not justify it. 
In a humbling chapter of an exemplary career, David Petraeus, a West Point grad who succeeded in leading U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan before becoming the nation's top spy, pleaded guilty in late April in federal court to sharing classified information. U.S. Magistrate Judge David Kiesler sentenced Petraeus to two years probation and a $100,000 fine because of the seriousness of the charges and to deter others. He called Petraeus' actions a serious lap of judgment. I want to apologize for the pain my actions caused, Petraeus said. He can travel internationally to make those speeches that will help him pay back that fine in probably the first speech. This language was used by a British newspaper this week. A leading U.S. television anchor made an emotional apology after she sparked outrage by suggesting on air that U.S. military veterans were responsible for the Baltimore riots. Brooke Baldwin of CNN. Leading. Leading what? The ratings? No. The, um, the ranks of trusted journalists? What is she leading? She said a lot of young men were returning to places such as Baltimore after military service. She said she'd been told this by city council people in Baltimore. They don't know their communities and they're ready to do war, she said to a Democratic congressman, Elijah Cummings. Baldwin apologized on social media, saying she had many friends among military veterans that she was repeating what she'd been told by local people. And then she apologized on CNN, saying she had the utmost respect for veterans and she had misspoke. To all of you, I owe you a tremendous apology. That's a good excuse. I was just repeating what somebody told me. The journal PLOS One has announced it has removed a reviewer whose remarks about a manuscript by two FEMA researchers caused an uproar earlier this week. The journal also formally removed the review from the record and sent the manuscript out to a new editor for review. I want to sincerely apologize for the distress the report caused the authors and to make clear we completely oppose the sentiments it expressed. The report contained objectionable language and the authors were understandably upset. The peer reviewer's suggestion was that the two female researchers find, quote, one or two male biologists to co-author and help them strengthen the manuscript they'd written. Chad Shanks, probably is his real name, was fired this week as Houston Rockets social media manager the previous night before the firing. As the Rockets were on the verge of a series-clinching victory over the Dallas Mavericks, Shanks tweeted, Shh, just close your eyes, it'll all be over soon. The tweet featured emojis of a gun pointed at a horse's head. The Mavericks logo is a horse's head. Shanks now says, I did my best to make the account the best in the NBA by pushing the envelope, but pushed too far for some, and for that I apologize. By the way, you want to push the edge of the envelope. If you push the whole envelope, you just then have to chase the envelope. Also in Texas... Dallas defensive end Greg Hardy, facing a 10-game suspension for his role in a domestic violence case, stirred criticism with a joking reference on Twitter to the 9-11 attacks. He later uh, apologized. If I'll say this, I apologize for comment that mentioned an event where no references to humor is ever okay, but I hope my real fans know I would never, he wrote. He's a football player. What do you want? Me? I want the apologies of the week. A copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shorewave giant WBCQ, the planet. 7.490 megahertz. Think of all those megahertz. On the mighty 104 in Berlin, available as a free podcast at SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio. And it'd be just like Corps of Engineers poning up for the damages. Yeah, if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, Shaq Poe to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. I've been thinking, what is the bell, the very distant bell that rings when I hear public radio people talking about storytelling? And I finally realized it reminds me of the um, middle-aged women in the heyday of television soap operas who used to say, I love my stories. Email address for this program and the playlist of the music heard here on. And Cars I Talk t-shirts, remember those? All available at harryshearer.com. And uh, if there's any news about me, you'll read about it first on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. Thank you. And this is the Change is Easy Radio Network.